The debate about who killed Jesus not only rages in religion classes and scholarly New Testament circles, but it has broken out again in the public square. But before we blame either the Jewish priests or the Roman governor and soldiers, let's take another hard look at the evidence. What does Matthew testify about Jesus' arrest, his trial, and his death? A lot of you have heard of the very famous Oberammergau Passion Play, and you might not know some of the background of that, but the truth is that back in 1633, the bubonic plague was sweeping through Europe again, and it was threatening this little town in the Bavarian village of Oberammergau, and, and the town leaders got together, and they prayed. They said, Dear God, if you'll protect us, and they prayed, they said, we will, we will do a passion. Every 10 years, we'll do a passion play to honor your son. That was their commitment. Well, not another person in that town died of the bubonic plague. And that was 350 years ago. And if you ever travel to Europe, one of the highlights of the trip is to go to probably, you know, this granddaddy of the uh, passion place. It's a very famous passion play. But what you might not realize is that Hitler... In 1934, Hitler went to that play, and this is what he had to say. In fact, he said, after going to the play, it is a vital part that the passion play be continued at Oberammergau. For never has the menace of Jewry, never has the menace of Jewry been so convincingly portrayed as in this presentation of what happened in the time of the Romans. Hitler said that there one sees Pontius Pilate, a Roman, racially and intellectually so superior, that he stands out like a firm, clean rock in the middle of the whole muck and mire of jewelry. I know that a lot of you have wondered, what's the big deal? As Texans, you say, you know, what's the big deal? You know, Mel Gibson made a play. You know, why is the Anti-Defamation League making such a big deal about it? And, and you start feeling like, what's the matter with these Jews? You know, don't they get it? And as a Bible church family, I want you to listen. Because if you think like that, you don't understand the history. And the truth of the matter is that passion plays have been used to fuel European mobs. And like in the Crusades, for example, the Crusaders, one of the very first things they did before they got to Jerusalem and tried to get rid of the Islamic invaders there, they said, well, we've got Jewish people, the Jews that killed Jesus right in our midst, let's kill them first. And so crusading armies would just go through villages or parts of cities where the Jewish people were living and just kill women and children. That's the history. If you're Jewish, that's the history. The truth of the matter is that in Russian pogroms, the, the Christians would all get whipped up. And if, if you were raised where I lived in New Jersey, about a half of my friends were Jews, and they knew their history really well. The truth of the matter is, as they think about their persecution, it escalated right about the time of Good Friday and Easter, and then Jews would be killed and they'd be beaten up. In fact, back in New Jersey, I remember guys that were rough and brutal at times would, would just call and say, you're the Jesus killers. They would mock some of my Jewish friends. It was very real when you're living and some of your very close friends that you're playing baseball with are Jewish. So you need to remember that history. And it's very important for us to be very quick to say, hey, that's not what we're about. That's not what we believe in. And you need to understand that there's been a long history. In fact, Dachau, which is one of the major concentration camps where the Jews was killed, is very close to Abramagal. So right within the shadow of where that passion play was done. For if you're Jewish, then that becomes a very, very powerful statement of what are these Christians doing? 
one of the things I want you to realize, it's very important to be quick to say that that's not what I'm about. And I understand your fears, and I understand what you're asking. I want you to know that when it comes to organized religion, when it comes to using power to push my faith, that that's not at all what I'm talking about. And as we move out into our society, we move out into our schools, move out into the medical profession, move out into the cement plants, and all that we're about this week, I want you to not go out as power people. I don't want you to go out as people that force. I want you to go out as people that are in love with Jesus. But our whole society has raised this issue, and the question is, the Jews killed Jesus. It raised the question. This attack, the Jews killed Jesus. And in New Testament scholarship, one of the major debates is, well, the Jews didn't do it, the Romans did it. And there's major theses that are written about how the Romans did it. After all, it's easy to blame the Romans. There aren't too many pilots standing around or too many Roman soldiers. So we're able to get by it, to get by that question. But what I want us to do this morning and what we're doing and getting ready for Good Friday and Easter is that we want to get back to the original source. I want you to open your Bible to get to Matthew chapter 26. We left Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. We saw him pray to his father in one of the most intimate times that we could ever have with the Son of God as he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. As we pick up the story in verse 47, it says, While he was still speaking, Jesus had just said to the disciples, Rise, let us go. Here comes a betrayer. Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. The Kidron Valley is down lower than that. Jesus can even see the torchlight and the mob that's coming to arrest him. And so Jesus knows what's coming. And one of the things that Matthew wants you to understand is that Jesus is in control here. He knows what's happening. This is his story. And so Jesus sees the crowd coming, and it says while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived. The very first thing Matthew wants us to focus on is a kiss. It's the famous kiss, and this is the setting. It says, when it, with him was a large crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests and the elders of the people. You can see it. Now, this isn't just a, a rabble-rousing crowd. This isn't just mob violence. These are the temple police. According to John's gospel, some of the terminology used, it's possible, though we can't go to the stake for it, it's possible that there's some Roman soldiers mixed in. So it's possible that even at this early period that Pilate has been brought into the loop, uh, because of some of the terminology that's used, we know that it's a large number of people. This isn't just a handful. They have 12 men that are powerful Galilean men, fishermen most of their life. If you've ever been in police actions and, and, and trying to pick someone up in the middle of the night, and when there's 12 guys, it's a threatening situation. So they're armed. They've got their swords. The sticks that they're carrying with it are like big clubs that we know from some other sources that the temple police use at times to break up riots and stuff. That's the crowd that's coming. Now, in the dark, and before the ages of TV, it's hard for you to imagine this. Like, you know what Kerry looks like. You know what President Bush looks like. You know what Madonna looks like. All the famous people that you're exposed to, you're hit with tremendous visual images over and over again. In the ancient world, you just take it for granted. In the ancient world, that wasn't so. And so some of these guys, they saw Jesus in the temple. You know, it's not like they see Jesus' image. And remember, it's dark. It's possible that the moon, that, which at Passover time would have been very full... It's possible it's a cloud, you know, a cloudy night. We don't know, but it's possible that it's dark. If you've ever been in an olive grove at night, there are these snarled trees and with a lot of foliage that's beginning to come out in the spring of the year. And it, so they've got to nail this down. So Judas makes it clear to the mob that the man that I go and kiss, that's the man. And the idea is to make this clean and neat and quick. And those of you that are involved in police work will know this is a good plan. 
because Judas is going to nail the man they need to go. They don't want to nail everyone else. They don't want to mess up this issue. They're, they don't want all the rest of the 11. They just want to get Jesus. That'll make it simple. They'll cut off the head of this new movement that's developing, and they'll take care of it. So that's the plan. It says with uh, Judas comes. It says, now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him. So going at once to Jesus, Judas said, greetings, rabbi, and he kissed him. Jesus replied, friend, do what you came for, or, or what is this that you're doing? It's very ambiguous what Jesus said. It's all, and he might have come out with something that was, inner, that, was that, that, that automatically the men jumped on him immediately. The men stepped forward, and they seized Jesus and arrested him. I want to talk, first of all, about who's to blame for the, you know, for the trial and the crucifixion of Jesus. I want you to know that Judas is Jewish. But the point of this passage is Matthew that wrote this story is Jewish. Jesus is Jewish. The majority of the band that came, if not all the band, is Jewish. So we're not talking about anti-Semitism here. We're not talking about an ethnic anger against a race of people. And what's tragic about what's been done with the Passion story is the point of Matthew's narrative is he wants you to ask yourself, what about the Judas and you? He says to Dave Wurtzen, David, what about the Judas and you? The point of this story is that we're going to learn today is Jesus is going to be left all alone. I want you to ask that question, why is Jesus left all alone? This isn't going to be Braveheart. This isn't going to be the story of a man who, who, who's powerful and mighty and he goes before the crowd. This isn't the Patriot where he waves the flag and all of you cheer. It's a totally different kind of a story. What Matthew wants to do is to help you to ask yourself, who am I in this story? The first question he wants you to ask yourself is, what about a kiss? And what's happening here is one of the real agonies of the Passion narrative is whose fault was it? One of the things, it was Judas's fault. It was Judas's sin. Judas was a friend, supposedly. He was an inner circle person, but he betrayed his Lord. And he did it in one of the most heinous ways that he could do it. And you need to understand the culture. And we don't know exactly how Jewish men greeted one another in the first century. And so people that say they know all about how to do it, we don't know what they did regularly on a regular basis. But we do know from the Old Testament, for example, Jacob, when he hadn't seen Esau in a long time, Esau runs to greet him and they embrace and they kiss. And it was a sign of we're now going to be reconciled. We're now going to be brothers. We're now we're going to put our anger in the past. There's also a story in the life of King David. King David had a general named Joab. There's a man named Amasa that was part of the other team, part of the enemy group. And Joab didn't like him. And so he met his friend. And Joab is a very treacherous man. He hugs this man. And then he stabs him as he's kissing him. And so there's a story of betrayal. Right in the Old Testament, you have this idea of a man that would embrace and kiss, and yet he would stab at the same time. So in the Old Testament, one thing we know for sure is that the kiss was a greeting that wasn't just casual. It would be communicating, I'm your friend. I'm your brother. And we're together. For example, last night we had a birthday party for Sharon. We were meeting at a home, and as I walk into the home, a bunch of men come up to an church family. It's very normal, and I want it to become even more normal because we're losing it in our culture. It was a very normal thing. Guys come up to me. We hadn't seen each other in a week. They come up to me. They hug me. Nothing crazy about that. I want every one of you to know that there is brother hugs. There are brother-sister hugs. There are sister-sister hugs. Your culture eroticizes everything. 
everything is sex. Those of you that work with little kids, when I worked with little kids as a 15-year-old, no one thought anything at all about having kids hang all over them. I had, I had 100 kids hanging all over me everywhere I went. I used to have to escape on my day off. I was so tired from touch. And some of those kids, brothers and sisters, had nobody else. Some of those kids were from the city, from the Washington Heights area of New York, where nobody ever hugged them in love. Not everything is sexual. We're taking little girls that are 11 years old and we make them look like beauty queens that are sexual objects and girls and moms. You need to think hard about what you're doing. Our culture doesn't let anybody just be a person. We don't let little kids be kids. We don't let men and women just be themselves. We don't know what it is. Like in the early church, they, Paul would command people, greet each other with a holy kiss. In the modern church, that would be pornographic. That's how far we've come from what it means to really be brothers and sisters. And all of you know deep in your soul, even in the midst of your messed up culture, you know that there are ways that you express affection. And I'm not saying that we, we reinstitute holy kiss. In America, we don't greet it. That's not the way we greet each other. When I was in Poland, and that is the way they greet. It was hard to get used to after you get to know the men. And I want you to know there's interesting things about this. Like the men don't just do it with anybody. So when we first arrived at the camp, when you greeted somebody, they didn't just greet you with a kiss. They would be more held back, just like in any other culture. But as the week proceeded, and as we taught them the word, and as we played volleyball with them and did a lot of things with them, they began to relate to us. And then they would hug you, and then they would kiss. And in a Slavic society, you kiss right here and right here, and you make sure, like I've joked with you in the past, you've got to make sure you know which way your head's going to go, or you just dunk. The girls do that with the men as well. But interesting... When we first went there, the girls were like, Polish girls, especially during the communist era, were very hesitant and very holding back, very modest. And so they didn't greet you like that. But it was interesting, when we left, when we left the camp, as we had spent a week together teaching the word, then as sisters, they did kiss on the cheek just like that. And once again, you had to make sure you ducked the right way. But there was all these cultural things going on. Can I trust this person? Is this holy? Is this the right thing? And as the Holy Spirit opened up brother-sister relationships, there were ways in that society to express that. In America, we have ways to express that. What I want you to see is that Judas knew that way, and he used it to kill his friend. That's who put Jesus on the cross. It was the treachery in our human art. Have you ever had a friend that you've were their companion, they thought you were a sister, they thought you were a brother, but you slandered them in another location, in another time, in another place, in another group of people. One of the most horrible things in God's family is when people kill one another, supposedly kissing one another. One of the most heinous stories is one of my friends just lost his daddy. His daddy was a pastor. And in this church family, as his daddy pastored, he tried to move them towards relationship. And, and the church started growing. Even at the short time he was there, and the church was flourishing, and many new people were coming. But the old guard didn't like it. And my friend suddenly died. And the church had a service, and a lot of love was expressed for my friend. But let another couple months go by, and the old guard started saying that my friend died because he was an evil man. That God judged him. Now that's betraying with a kiss. That's one of the most horrible. Can you imagine a widow? She just lost her husband and now you're saying that God took him home? 
because he was a bad pastor? Brothers and sisters, that's from hell. And that's what Judas is talking about. I'm just being really honest. This is what we can do to one another. So when you ask the question, who killed Judas, you need to ask yourself, what are you like in relationships? I stressed it last week. I'm stressing it again. Jesus is telling us that what puts him on the cross is our tendency towards betrayal. Why should you trust in Jesus? How do you respond when somebody betrays you? How do you respond when somebody stabs you verbally, literally? Well, I stab back. And why do you see that even at this point, Jesus says, friend. He uses a word in, in Aramaic and, and Greek, whichever they spoke, probably Aramaic. He probably used a word that said he still called Judas his friend. I want you to know this morning, Jesus, even if you betrayed him, even if you're a Judas, Jesus is still looking at you and saying, you're my friend. And the ambiguity with the way that Judas responds to him in Greek leaves open the door. Judas, you still can turn away. You're still not locked in. It's an amazing thing about the sovereignty of God because Jesus knows what Jesus is going to do. But don't you turn the sovereignty of God into a, into a locked-in pattern where Judas isn't responsible. Because in Matthew's narrative, even at this point, Jesus is saying, you're my friend, Judas. You've betrayed me, but I still haven't turned away from you. That's an amazing thing. And brothers and sisters, that's why I love Jesus. The next thing I want you to look at in this story is his, his defending with a sword. And as Americans, if I would have been doing this as a Hollywood flick, what I would have done here, it says, it says as Jesus is arrested and Judas betrayed him, it says the men stepped in, in verse 30, and they fought and they seized him. And with that, one of Jesus' companions. Now, here's the American hero. This is a great movie. One of Jesus' companions. We know from the Gospel of John that it's Peter. And we know the name of the guy is Malchus, probably the head of the band, the Jewish high priest servant. Who we, There's even uh, servants of the high priest that became the high priest in some of the other history of that period. So this is a highfalutin guy, not just a lowly servant. He could have easily even been the leader of the crowd that came to get him. He reached for his sword. Peter grabbed for his sword, draws it out, and he struck this from the high priest, cutting off his ear. Now that's good American bravery. Man, that's the kind of a man I want with me, right? And I want to be honest with you, that's where I am in my own day. That's me. Now, I might turn tail and run after I do it, just like Peter did. <laughs> and, and this is good America. As Americans, we're into this. Peter does what, what the red-blooded, strong, powerful man does. He rips at his sword. I don't think, you've all heard it, pastors have told you, I don't think Peter, Peter wasn't an accurate swordsman. Some of the New Testament scholars will say, well, Peter delicately cut off his ear because that, that would mean no longer could he serve in the temple because he would have had his face marred. I don't think Peter was that great a swordsman. I mean, it takes a really good swordsman in the dark with a moving target to just flip the guy's ear. I think Peter was going for the whole head and he just missed. <laughs> Now, this is one of the hardest things. What does your Savior say to you? As Americans, you're into power. To be honest with you, who put Jesus on the cross? I want to share with you. Peter's power put Jesus on the cross. Because as human beings, you think we can handle it. We can rip out our sword in human relationships and business and all the different areas, and we can overcome. And this is one of the hardest things about your Savior. If you want a different kind of Savior, then you should be Islamic. Because if I tell this story and Muhammad is in the story, Muhammad says, throw the sword to me, and he cuts off the head of the servant that Peter missed. That's the truth. So if you're from an Islamic background, study your history, because Muhammad is a different kind of a savior, totally different. 
And so you need to make it really clear. Why do millions of people follow Muhammad? There's good reasons. He's a man's man. He's a fighter. He's a swordsman. He's a great warrior. If you don't believe it, a hundred years. He inspired men that, that his armies swept. And in just a hundred years after he died, they were the dominating military force. A lot of you don't know that history well enough. But for a thousand years, Islam was the dominant military force in the world. Before America was even heard of, Islamic armies ruled the oikumene, the, the known world, the cultural world. That's why they're mad. You want that kind of a leader? What kind of leader was Jesus? Look how Jesus responds. These are some of the hardest words that Jesus says to you if you're going to follow him. Look what he says. It says, Jesus said, put your sword back in its place. Boy, I'm thankful Jesus said that. Put your sword back in its place. For all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think that I cannot call on my father and he will at once put at my disposable more than 12 legions of angels? There's 6,000 Roman legionaries, 120 cavalry in a legion. 6,000 foot soldiers, 120 cavalry, plus all their auxiliaries. Jesus says, don't you think they're at my beck and call, 12 legions of angels? But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen in this way? I want you to look really hard at that, brothers and sisters, because we need to think about how we're going to fight, how we're going to win our culture wars, how we're going to win our families, how we're going to work in our neighborhood. And one of the dominant ways that we have is you meet force with force. Now, I want to make it really clear here. This is not a setting where we're talking about a government versus a government. Romans 13 is a totally different passage. We're talking about... The body of Christ in its incipient form. Jesus was his 11 disciples. We're talking about how you communicate spiritual values. I want you to think clearly about that. If you're a policeman, Jesus isn't telling you to not take your gun with you when you go to downtown Dallas in the middle of the night and work down on Deep Ellum. Not what Jesus is talking about. But he is talking about you as a daddy, as an elder, as a believer. One of the things that religion wants to do, religion wants to rip out its sword. Peter says, all right, Savior, this is our chance. This is the time to be the big Messiah. Rip out your sword. And what Peter was expecting is Jesus to say, this is the moment. This is the time. And the Old Testament passage has talked about a great son of David who would demolish and shatter his enemies. And there's prayers of David where David prays, Lord, may my enemies be pushed into the dirt and become dust. And very vehement, poisonous passages against David's enemies. And, and they're legitimate. David in his earthly life had enemies that needed to be destroyed. The Philistines and, and men like that. Very real thing. In the Old Testament, there is a Messiah, a son of David, who comes and is a military, powerful man. The book of Revelation talks about Jesus the next time he comes. And the next time Jesus is going to come, and he's not going to need Peter's sword. The next time Jesus comes, he has a sword that comes out of his mouth. And it's not a literal sword. He just speaks the word. You don't have to pull anything out when you're the son of God. You just speak, and your enemies are down. But it's very important for the body of Christ during the time of grace to understand that our Savior tells us now to put up the sword. You're not going to win with power. As a mom and dad, you're not going to get your kids to believe in Jesus just with a sword. You can't force them into their behavior pattern. You can't make them live a certain way. You can't just lock them in. From the time they're just little guys, sure you need to have better, but you need to be communicating. You've got to make a choice what you're going to do with Jesus. Some of you as, as young adults, you're at the age now where you're making up your decision what you're going to believe about Jesus. And I want you to know 
that the real Jesus isn't going to force you, he's not going to put a sword at your throat. That's what's wrong with some of the hellfire and damnation preaching. It almost puts a sword at your throat and says, you've got to believe or else. The real biblical Jesus didn't do that. He goes much deeper than that. He says, put up your sword. He said, because if you take a sword, the one that uses a sword is going to die by the sword. That's just the reality of the way it is. If you're a fighter, then eventually you're going to fight someone who's better than you are, and you'll die. It's the way it is. And Jesus is honest. It's a proverb. It's almost like a proverb. The man that lives by the sword will die by the sword. It's a general statement of the way the life really is. If you're a fighter, you're eventually going to get knocked out. And Jesus reminds Peter of that. The second thing he reminds Peter of, he says, Peter, you don't know the resources that are available to me. You see, we fight not against flesh and blood. The real enemy, some of you think it's the Democrats. They're the enemy. Some of you think, well, it's the left, the American left. They're the enemy. I want to share with you, that's not the enemy. The real enemy is what's inside of us. It's Peter saying, I can do it. We can do this. I rip out my sword. And we forget the resources that are available to us. At the end of the book of Ephesians, we're going to learn, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against powers, against spiritual forces in high places. And brothers and sisters, I want to confess before you that I can't handle the devil and all of his demons. And my speaking ability and my intellectualism and everything, I'm just a little midget if I go hand-to-hand with the great forces that want to take out my kids, want to take out my brothers and sisters sitting before me, want to take me out. And that's why I've come to Jesus. Because he's the son of God. He can call 12 legions of angels. And if he wants to use force, he can do it. But the amazing thing is you need to ask yourself, why is it that in his first coming that he didn't call the angels to come? Why didn't he call just Michael to come and just demolish that mob that wanted to arrest him? It's because he loved you. Because you're a Judas, and I'm a Judas, and you're a Peter. That's why he didn't do it. And he grabbed the ear of Malchus and he put it back up on his face because he came to be the healer. He taught him the Sermon on the Mount. Love your enemies. Do good to those that persecute you. Do good to those that have malignancy against you and want to destroy you. And what Jesus is doing is Jesus models what he teaches. Jesus is consistent with the way that he taught. And what he's showing us is this in the age of grace is how you really influence people. Jesus is saying, number one, you're not going to use the sword to really change, to accomplish God's plan as a body of Christ. Number two, don't forget the resources that you have available. And number three, Jesus says, don't you know it's been written to me? Look what Jesus says. He says, but how then would the scriptures be fulfilled? And when it says that it must happen in this way, Jesus was obedient to his father. He was okay in the worst situation of life, even when his friends were abandoning him. Jesus was able to hang in there because he believed that God's word was going to be fulfilled. Do I? What a comfort that's been during this week as I'm getting ready to teach you. You know what? In my heavenly daddy's will, it was written, Bobby would die, that Blythe would have Rett syndrome, that bad things would happen to good people, that there would be real highs for Dave and Mary and real lows. And what a wondrous thing it is to know that my heavenly daddy's writing a plan. He's not saying that Judas betraying the son of God's a good thing. It's an evil thing. It's not saying that Peter's arrogance and his seizing of divine prerogative with his own human sword. He's not saying, well, that's a good thing. 
But what he is saying that there's a heavenly daddy, there's a king that's really writing a good plan. And this will steady you in your life as you go out today. God knows. He's writing a great story for your life. Things are going to work out. Jesus knows where we're headed. And what he's saying here, and it doesn't even give a specific scripture here, and the reason it doesn't give a specific scripture is that from Matthew's viewpoint, all of the Old Testament is about this redemption. All the Old Testament scripture moves, the whole story moves towards the suffering Lamb of God who will willingly give himself for the sins of the world. Jesus was in control, but they knew that the human sword wasn't going to do it. Jesus knew what his divine authority was. And thirdly, Jesus knew that his daddy had a plan and he was obedient to the scripture. And you're going to have to decide what you're going to do with your life. And I need to decide what I'm going to do with my life. What happened next? Everyone leads. So at that time, Jesus said to the crowd, am I leading a rebellion that you come out with me with swords and clubs to capture me every day? I sat in the temple courts and you did not arrest me. But this has all happened, taken place, that the writing of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples deserted him and fled. All the disciples deserted him and left. Why? Because, brothers and sisters, Jesus has to stand alone. One of the things you need to realize, if you're going to understand who killed Jesus, is I killed Jesus. Because there's a part of Dave Wurtzen that's a betrayer. There's a part of me that's a betrayer. There's a part of me that, that hugs friends and loves friends and then gets jealous of friends. And might try to stab him in the back. And the only thing that keeps me from doing it is the beautiful Holy Spirit. That when I open up to him, says, David, you can be treacherous. You can be a betrayer. Let me change you. Let me help you act differently. Let me help you grow. That's what this story is about. David, when somebody pushes you on the basketball court, if somebody runs into you while you're snowboarding, your very first response is knock their block off. When I'm in a leadership meeting and, you know, I've got an idea where our church needs to go and we've prayed about it and somebody stands against me and says, no, I don't really think that ought to be way. There's a part of me rip out my sword, cut their head off. That's why churches divide. The reason our church hasn't divided is because there's been a Holy Spirit humility that leadership's been willing to put their sword back, willing to follow this Savior that says, don't you know we've got heavenly authority here? Don't you know I can call thousands upon thousands of angels. We can build these buildings. We can reach these kids. We can touch lives. But don't ever, ever forget it. It's only because of heavenly authority, heavenly power. And it's going to be accomplished through gentle humility. And I'm like the crowd. We're going to find out next week about Jesus' trial before the Jewish Sanhedrin. One of the most debatable questions about the story of Jesus. And we're going to find out that they were into religion. They loved their place. They loved their building. And Jesus faced with one of the most important questions of all, who am I? And Jesus is going to tell them who he is. And you're going to have to answer that question, who is Jesus? And everybody left. And today I want to share with you the reason Jesus had to die is because everybody left. You know why everyone left? Because they're all sinners. When Jesus hung on the cross, nobody's with them. Everybody's gone. Nobody hung with him. He's just alone between two thieves. And he became identified with the thieves on the cross because that's me. No room for anti-Semiticism because I'm the one that did it. And we need to shout it from the housetops. You see, what you're going to decide today, every one of you sitting before me today as you read the story, some of you are like Judas. You're a con artist. 
That's one of your besetting weaknesses. Some of you are like Peter. You do everything in your own strength. You grab your sword. Some of you don't believe that God really has a plan, that you don't trust the word of God. You're trying to work everything out yourself. That's why you're a control freak, and you drive all of us nuts because you won't be obedient to the Father's plan. You always feel things are on the edge. So you can't relax. You can't let the Lord work it out. And that's why Jesus had to die, because every one of us turned tail and run away from Jesus. But the good news is, after Jesus stretched out his arms for us, and after he shed his blood for us, and after he rose again from the dead, those 11 guys, when the Holy Spirit came upon them, came back to their Savior. They came back to Jesus. And that's the story of a lot of you. And they came back as new men and women. Peter, the sore guy, is a guy that if you read the book of 1 Peter, do it this week. 1 Peter is the most eloquent description of how you need to put your sword back. He wrote an entire letter where the central thesis is put your sword back in its sheath. And follow your Savior through the Garden of Gethsemane, through the arrest, through the cross. Peter himself modeled that. What I want you to realize as you go out today is that I killed Jesus and you killed him. And if you'll admit that and say, I'm a sinner, and then open your heart and receive the gift of what Jesus is doing. That doesn't just something we do when we're the first time we're saved. It's something that we need to do this week. Humility, humbly recognizing. Humility and total loss of arrogance. We say, Lord, thank you that alone you took the penalty that I deserved. And you put yourself in the story. I want you to live the story. I want, I want to live the story. And one of the big things you have to ask as you, as you watch a story, as you listen to a story, is who am I? And what Matthew wants you to realize, that you're Judas, that you're Peter, that you're the mob, that you're the bad guy, and so am I. And the ultimate good Son of God, totally different from all of us, gave his life so that we could go from badness to goodness. And I pray with all my heart that if you've never received that good news, if you've never met this Jesus, I'm not talking about becoming a Bible church person or a Roman Catholic person or a Protestant. I'm just talking about becoming someone that's devoted to this Jesus, this Jewish Jesus, this Jewish Messiah. And I'm sharing with you from the depths of my heart as I close today, the reason I've chosen Jesus is I've met no other man. I've met a lot of really cool men. My dad was a really cool guy. Chuck Swindoll's a cool guy. Howard Hendricks. Billy Graham is a super guy. But you know what? I've never met a man that's like Jesus. I'm, I, from the depths of my heart as I close today, I've never met a man. As I go into the garden with Jesus, I've never met a man that talks and acts like Jesus. I've never met a man that still calls a betrayer, friend. You don't have to do this. I still love you. I've never met a friend that didn't tell me. He said, let's take the sword together. I've never had a friend that said, just put the sword away. I'm God. I'm in control. I can call the angels, but we're not going to do that. We're going to go a different way. I've never met a man that when everyone else has left him, that he doesn't leave as well. I've never met a man that when he stands totally alone, and he's been totally rejected. He still obeys his daddy in heaven and gives his life so that all those people that ran away can come back home. And that's why I love him. And that's why I talk about him. And that's why I want you to fall in love with him. And I want to pray that I'll never get over the wonder of what happened in the garden that night. Because Jesus is the new man. He's the new Adam. And the snake bit him as hard as he could, but Jesus stepped on that snake. And he took that rap that we deserved and he gave his life for us. Let's pray.
Father, we've just been able to talk this morning about a kiss and a betrayer, and we've talked about a commitment to your word, and next week we'll have to go on and talk about the trial before the Sanhedrin and the trial before Pilate. And I just want to ask you, Lord, that by your Holy Spirit's power, that you would help us to really meet you, that we'll really hear you, that we'll really see you. There's a part of me, Lord, that can stay on the outside as a critic, as a detached observer. There's a part of me that can be hard and cold, and I want you to forgive me for that. There's a part of me that can analyze all the words and uh, know every detail of the original manuscript as I read them and miss the point of it all. And I just want to pray this morning, Lord, that we would not have missed the point. I just ask you, Lord, that you would use our exposure to the rest in the garden to help my brothers and sisters to be able to really get back there and really get to know you, Lord Jesus. Just begin to understand the way you think and the way you feel, the way you decide, because it's so different than the way that I do. And Lord, this is one of those passages where you really, you really unmask yourself and you really show us who you are. And what I want is I want businessmen and women that will go out this week and they won't muscle people. They'll forgive people. And that's going to be tough. And I want school teachers that will be able to work with kids, that a lot of the kids that are angry and betraying one another and begin to be a model of someone that doesn't do that. I just close, Lord, by just asking you for anyone that's never met this Jesus, that they would hear your voice, that they would understand your love, that they would understand why you died, and that you would help them to open their life to you, that they will decide to follow you and to build their life on you and to let you be their Savior. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen.